0: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: On a hot summer night in 1983, Carla Faye Tucker sprawled across her living room couch. Her boyfriend, Daniel Garrett cracked open a beer, and eased onto the seat beside her. She rested her legs in his lap and stretched. If it wasn't for Douglas Garrett, Daniel's brother, she'd be totally relaxed.
0: She glared across the room and watched Douglas fidgeting in his chair. He looked crazy, sweaty, and pale. His eyes darted from the doors to the windows.
1: Carla knew Douglas was uptight. He was a tightly coiled wire, always ready to spring, But tonight, he was just a mess. He looked scared and somehow sad, too.
0: She felt a twinge of shame as she watched him bite his lip. She'd set him off by telling a bloody story. Douglas couldn't handle it, but she practically got high from recounting it. She loved to fight.
1: Carla tried to extend an olive branch and change the subject, but it did no good. Douglas decided it was time to leave. Trying to make amends, Carla hopped off the couch and followed him out.
0: She rubbed his back, but he jumped, as if her touch scalded him. He climbed onto his motorcycle, and before Carla could ask what was wrong, he disappeared into the night. Carla didn't realize it, but it was one of the last times they'd ever see each other.
1: Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
0: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case.
1: You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solve Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solve Murders in the search bar.
0: This is our second episode on Jerry Dean and Deborah Thornton. In part one, we talked about how the two strangers met at a party and spent the night together. The next morning, they were discovered murdered in Jerry Dean's bedroom. In part
1: two, we'll discuss how the police closed in on the murderers. We'll also talk about how one killer's change of heart sparked a worldwide debate about capital punishment.
2: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be
0: On June 13, 1983, 32-year-old Deborah Thornton and 27-year-old Jerry Dean were found brutally murdered, but the investigation stalled five weeks later. There were far too many suspects for police to narrow down. But all of that changed on July 18, 1983, when authorities received a huge break in the case.
1: That night, a man named Douglas Garrett got in touch with Houston homicide detective J.C. Mosier. Douglas told Mosier that he knew who the killers were. He had been keeping the secret for five weeks, but he couldn't stay silent any longer. He claimed that his brother, Daniel, and Daniel's girlfriend, Carla Faye Tucker, had committed the murders with the help of their friend, James Liebrandt.
0: The killings were motivated by revenge. Carla had held a grudge against Jerry Dean for years. Jerry supposedly loathed Carla in return. According to her, he even tried to pay a hitman to shoot Carla in the face with a flare gun.
1: But on July 13th, Carla put an end to the feud once and for all, and she'd been bragging about it ever since. Douglas was the first to discover what Daniel and Carla had done. At 6.30 a.m. on June 13th, he awoke to find the couple
3: outside his door. What in God's name are y'all doing here?
5: We off to Jerry Dean last night. Don't joke about that.
3: It's not funny. We're not kidding. I said quit it, Daniel.
5: You think we're messing around? Check this out. I took his wallet off him. We snatched up that motorcycle he was building, too.
3: Are you out of your minds? Can we store this stuff at your place? Uh, Are you crazy?
5: No! As soon as the police find this stuff, they'll know what you did. Come on, Douglas. Don't you wimp out on us. I don't want any part of this. You're really
6: going to turn your back on me like that? We're brothers.
3: I'm not turning my back on you. Then help me out. I... (sighs) just hurry up and dump it before someone
0: sees. Despite Douglas's reluctance, he eventually let them leave the stolen items at his place. But soon, his nerves got the better of him. That same day, he burned the wallet in an ashtray. He later disposed of the motorcycle parts in a ditch.
1: Over the next few weeks, Carla's sister, Carrie Weeks, also learned of the murders. She was so terrified by what Carla had done that she moved out of Carla's house and went to live with Douglas. The two sets of siblings, Douglas and Carrie, Daniel and Carla, had once been a tight-knit circle. Now the murders had shattered their bond.
0: Douglas started having recurring nightmares about being chased by madmen with guns. He tried to talk to his brother about it, but Daniel just shrugged it off.
3: Every night it's the same dream. It's like I'm surrounded. They're all armed. They're all out to get me. I'm hiding, but I know it's only a matter of time. I know they're going to shoot me. You need to relax, Doug. None of this had anything to do with you.
6: It feels real. Every time, every night and just give it time. I can't believe you two did it. You think we're not suffering, too? We're the ones who might get arrested, not you. Look, I'm sorry I told you about this, but just hang in there. It'll pass.
1: Douglas's nerves were completely frayed. To make things worse, Carla and Daniel were talking about killing again. Now that she'd gotten a taste for blood, Carla was mulling over the idea of murdering Carrie's ex-husband, Ronnie.
0: Apparently, Ronnie was one of the people Carla and Daniel bragged to after the murders. They now worried that he knew too much. The fact that Carrie was against killing Ronnie didn't seem to matter to Carla. Killing made her feel powerful, and she wanted to experience the rush once again.
1: Carrie didn't know what to do. Carla had always been her fierce protector. Now she had become something else, something Carrie was afraid of. She shared her concerns with Douglas, who worried that they could be considered accessories to murder if they stayed silent any longer. Ultimately, both Douglas and Carrie agreed they had to tell the police.
0: Douglas chose to speak with Detective Mosher because the officer was a friend and because he knew Daniel personally. He occasionally visited the bar where Daniel worked, where they exchanged friendly chit-chat.
1: Detective Mosier couldn't believe that someone he knew could be responsible for such a brutal crime. But the truth was undeniable. After the phone call, Douglas and Carrie went down to the station to give their statements. They talked to police for two hours, telling detectives everything they knew. Douglas also took police to the ditch where he dumped the parts to Jerry Dean's motorcycle.
0: Afterwards, Mosher asked Douglas if he'd be willing to go back and talk to Daniel and Carla while wearing a wire. Douglas agreed. Two days later, officers helped Douglas prepare to face his brother. Are you nervous?
3: Yeah, a bit.
0: The trick is
4: to stay quiet. You want them to keep running their mouths. Don't go interrupting or chiming in. Let them dig their own graves. What if they figure me out? We'll be close by. If you run into trouble, we'll storm the place before they know what hit him.
3: I can't believe I'm doing this.
4: He's my brother. He's a grown man. He knows right and wrong, just like you. You'll do just fine.
1: On July 20th, 1983, Douglas rode his motorcycle over to Carla and Daniel's place. He walked into their home with a transmitter taped to his chest and a tape recorder stuffed in his boot.
0: A police van was parked a few blocks away. Detective Mosher and a handful of Houston police officers sat inside, listening to everything Douglas's wire picked up.
1: Douglas found Carla and Daniel drinking with several friends. He sat down on the couch, determined to look casual. After a few minutes of small talk, he steered the conversation to the murders.
3: I've been wondering, did y'all go over there intending to kill those people?
5: I don't know. It just happened. Yeah, that's right. They were there. We were there. It just happened. But why? Mostly, I wanted that bike.
3: Were they asleep when you got there?
5: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but they woke up fast. What did it feel like, killing them? Like nothing else. Want to know the truth? I got off on it. I got off with every swing.
0: The trio had a long conversation about the killings. Carla Faye Tucker and Daniel Garrett were brazen and didn't shy away from spilling the details. Carla even claimed that she achieved orgasm each time she struck Jerry Dean with the pickaxe.
1: Douglas Garrett captured the entire damning conversation on tape. After they'd talked through the murders... He mentioned his recurring bad dream once again.
0: After about an hour and a half, Douglas abruptly left. The whole conversation, not to mention the guilt he felt for informing on his brother, overwhelmed him. He looked so distraught as he climbed on his motorcycle that Carla tried to comfort him. She had no idea that he'd led police straight to her.
1: Douglas took off on his bike, not daring to look back. Once his brother was gone... Daniel Garrett left for his evening shift at the bar, but he'd only driven a few blocks when he found himself surrounded by squad cars. He stepped out of the car with his hands
0: raised.
6: What the hell's all this about? Turn around, hands behind
4: your back.
0: Detective Mosier began reading Daniel his rights. As the detective informed him that he was being arrested for murder, Daniel realized that they knew each other. He asked Mosier, J.C., you think I'd do a thing like that?
1: Later, Mosher said that it didn't bother him to arrest a friend. It only bothered him that his friend had done the crime. After taking Daniel into custody, police readied their weapons and surrounded the house of Carla Faye Tucker.
0: They found the front door already open. Carla had left it ajar because friends were always streaming in and out of the home. For years, Carla had kept a constant party going. But finally... The party came to an end.
5: What's going on? Police, stay where you are. Get that gun out of my face.
1: The house erupted into chaos. One of the partygoers jumped out of a back window but was quickly apprehended by officers surrounding the house. Police also arrested Carla and Daniel's accomplice, James Leibrandt, who just happened to stop by at the same time as the raid.
0: The group was taken to the police station. Under questioning, almost everyone told the police what they knew. They'd all heard Carla and Daniel boasting about the killings. Some had seen Daniel in possession of the motorcycle frame that had once held Jerry Dean's custom-built bike. One friend had helped Daniel sell a shotgun he'd brought with him the night of the murders.
1: Carla and Daniel's friends had a lot of information, and they were quick to share it. The only ones who kept silent were the killers themselves.
4: What can you tell us about the night of June 12th?
5: I can tell you I was loaded. Crazy on pills. Honestly, I don't remember a thing.
0: (laughs) Uh. Officers couldn't elicit a confession out of Carla or Daniel, but at that point, it didn't matter.
1: They were both charged with murder. Things didn't look good for Carla Faye Tucker or Daniel Garrett.
0: Coming up, the killers fight for their lives.
1: History, politics, true crime. The new Spotify original from Parcast has it all. Hi, I'm Carter, and I am thrilled to tell you about the new series, Very Presidential, with Ashley Flowers. It uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flower shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, from torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder. She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: On the
1: night of July 20th, 1983, 23-year-old Carla Faye Tucker and 37-year-old Daniel Garrett were charged with capital murder for killing Jerry Dean and Deborah Thornton. They were held in the Harris County Jail without bond while awaiting their trials.
0: Carla made it through her first few months in jail with the same brassy swagger that had gotten her through the first 23 years of her tumultuous life. When she first met her court-appointed attorneys in October of 1983, one of her lawyers, Henry Onken, recalled that he couldn't stand her because she didn't seem to care about anything.
5: You may be my lawyers, but that doesn't mean I have to do what you say.
6: Honey, you're looking at a needle in your arm unless you can convince 12 people that you deserve to live.
5: You're not scaring me. I'm not
6: trying to scare you. Those are the facts. How you behave now is going to determine how your story ends. So what are you going to do?
5: Nothing I can do, is there? I don't need a law degree to tell me all this talk is useless.
1: But over time, Carla began to change her mind. She later said that her time in jail was the first time she was really alone. She had always been surrounded by a crowd of people, and most of them she acknowledged were a bad influence. But inside, she no longer felt any pressure to impress her biker friends and lovers. For the first time, she didn't need to prove that she was the toughest person in the room.
0: It was also the first time in more than a decade that she was sober. With a clearer mind, she began to rethink her life. About five months after her arrest in December of 1983, Carla began attending AA meetings. She met others like her whose lives had been destroyed by drugs and abuse.
1: At the meeting, she also met a chaplain named Rebecca Lewis, who encouraged Carla to attend Bible study classes. These sessions quickly became a lifeline for
2: her.
4: I miss most of my daughter's childhood. I lost 10 years of my life to drugs. But in the last few weeks, we've been exchanging letters and, and she's coming for a visit next month. That's wonderful news. Carla, do you have anything to share?
5: I don't really know what to say. Nobody ever treated me like I was worth anything before now. No one ever listened to me before. I'm thankful.
0: Chaplain Lewis had seen many prisoners turn to religion for insincere reasons, but she didn't believe that there was anything phony about Carla's newfound faith. She told skeptics that Carla was consistent in her attitude and actions.
1: For the first time ever, it appeared that Carla was devoted to improving herself— In her old life, she rarely read. She never finished school past the eighth grade and thought it was a waste of time. But in jail, she enthusiastically read the Bible and any other books she could get her hands on.
0: She even led her own Bible study group and mentored other women in jail. She was transformed.
1: Still, no amount of repentance could erase the deaths of Jerry Dean and Deborah Thornton. Carla Faye Tucker and Daniel Garrett still had to face justice for their crimes, The pair were tried separately, with Carla's trial coming first in April of 1984.
0: Carla pled not guilty, although she didn't actually dispute that she had committed the murders. Since her conversion to Christianity, she vowed to be honest. She was willing to admit everything. But her lawyers hoped to convince the jury that the crime didn't qualify as a capital case and that Carla should be charged with a lesser offense.
1: The defense suggested that Carla was under the influence of so many drugs at the time of the murders that she hardly knew what she was doing. They believed it was more of a sudden explosion of violence rather than a premeditated act.
0: Some of the witnesses for the prosecution seemed to support this idea. Douglas Garrett was one of the individuals called to testify against Carla. Even as he accused her of murder, he suggested that she and Daniel weren't in control of their own actions at the time of the crime.
6: Mr. Garrett, you turned in your own brother, is that right? I did. You felt you had to?
3: Yes, they needed to be stopped, because the devil had taken over their minds and bodies, that much I know.
6: You don't think Daniel and Carla made up their own minds to kill those
3: two people? I can't say if they knew right from wrong. I do know that the devil played his part in it.
1: The jury didn't know what to make of Douglas's strange testimony. For Carla, it was heartbreaking to hear, but she understood. She later said he did what he thought was right. It was harder to listen to her sister, Carrie Weeks, turn against her. She sobbed when Carrie pointed to her while on the stand and and identified her as the murderer.
0: The defense rested without calling a single witness to defend Carla. When her lawyer gave his closing arguments, he even told the jury outright that Carla was guilty.
1: He knew the evidence was stacked against her, but he felt that if he didn't tell the truth, he'd lose all credibility. If they trusted him, he had a better chance of convincing them to spare his client's life.
0: In the end... The jury deliberated for just over an hour. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty.
1: Carla still had one last chance to avoid the death penalty. The verdict was in, but the judge still had the option of sentencing Carla to life in prison instead of condemning Carla to die.
0: Before the jury made their decision, Carla testified for nearly five hours She talked about the rocky life that led up to the night of the murders.
5: For 23 years, I was in a fog, I guess. It's only now that I see clearly. I was a wild child, for sure. But I know I could be better.
6: Were you a threat to society? The way you were living before all this?
5: Yeah, I was. I probably don't deserve mercy. And I'm sorry for what I did. I don't know how I could ever make up for it. But... I'd like the chance.
0: The jury deliberated for another three hours. Quiet! One at a time! She doesn't look like some psycho killer. She looks like a
3: regular person. She made a mistake. I don't like the thought of sending her to die. Yeah, but feelings don't matter, do they? The law's the law.
1: The jury came back in unanimous agreement. Carla Faye Tucker was sentenced to die by lethal injection.
0: Carla wept as she heard the verdict. She was devastated, but not surprised. She thanked her lawyers for trying their best before she was escorted back to jail.
1: With the verdict, Carla Faye Tucker became the only woman on Texas's death row, joining 180 male inmates. She was set to be the first woman executed in Texas since the Civil War.
0: But her story wasn't over. By law, her case was automatically appealed. As she waited for her appeals to move through the justice system, she had one more task ahead of her.
1: Carla agreed to testify against her boyfriend, Daniel Garrett, at his trial. She had nothing to gain in doing so, and she still loved Daniel. She hoped that he wouldn't be convicted, but in the end, she felt it was her duty to tell the truth.
0: Carla's testimony cemented the case against Daniel. In November of 1984, he too was found guilty and sentenced to death by lethal injection. But he didn't seem to hold a grudge against Carla. Years later, he even wished he could take full blame for the murders to spare Carla's life.
1: Once the trial was over, Carla and Daniel parted ways once again— Daniel went to a facility just outside of Huntsville, Texas, and Carla traveled 200 miles north to Gatesville Prison. She was initially alone, but over time, three more women joined Carla on death row. They formed a tight circle. They had meals together, prayed together, taught each other to knit. They supported one another.
4: Hey, Carla. Who are you knitting that sweater for? It's a Christmas present for my lawyer. You're getting good at that. If you were on the outside... I'd bet you'd be sitting by the fire, stitching up your husband's socks.
5: <laughs> a real domestic goddess, huh? <laughs> if I were on the outside, I'd probably still be on drugs and who knows what else. Thank
0: God I'm not. The women became practically family. One of the inmates, Pam Perillo, was working on a case to have her sentence commuted to life in prison. This gave Carla hope.
1: In 1993, she learned that her old boyfriend, Daniel, had died of liver disease. He had just been granted a new trial due to errors in the jury selection process, but couldn't see his case through to the end.
0: Carla didn't want her life to end the same way. She pursued every legal avenue she could, and she eventually managed to stall her execution indefinitely while the battles raged on in court. As Carla fought to survive, she began to accrue a devoted following of supporters, including a few she never expected.
1: Coming up, Carla gets face-to-face with the people whose lives she destroyed.
3: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: After she was convicted of murder in 1984, Carla Faye Tucker clung to hope, believing that her attorneys would free her from death row. Almost everyone who interacted with Carla noted that she had undergone a drastic change since her arrest.
1: No one was more surprised than Ronald Carlson, the brother of one of Carla's victims, Deborah Thornton, In the early 1990s, Carlson arrived at Gatesville Prison to visit Carla.
0: Like her, Carlson had become a born again Christian. He hadn't come to confront Carla, he'd come to forgive her. He explained that he didn't believe in the death penalty and that he hoped she'd be spared.
1: He wasn't the only one. Jerry Dean's sister, Peggy Kurtz, was also moved by the difference she saw in Carla. Their support wasn't just symbolic. They became public advocates for her. Peggy made positive statements about Carla in an episode of 60 Minutes. Ronald made several talk show appearances trying to build a case to save
0: Carla's life. As years went on, appeal after appeal was rejected. But Carla found new hope in the growing number of people who campaigned for mercy. In a surprising turn to some, conservative televangelist Pat Robertson spoke out in support of her. Even a representative for the Vatican weighed in, asking for clemency. Carla became a darling of
1: many anti-death penalty advocates, but as her notoriety increased, she gained just as many detractors. Deborah Thornton's husband, Richard, was among them. Every time supporters spoke out on Carla's behalf, he loudly reminded the world what she had taken away from him. He called her a heinous person and a monster.
0: For those who had heard Carla's story, the details of the murders were impossible to forget, no matter how much she had changed. As one Houston Chronicle reporter wrote, no one could ever remove that pickaxe from the poster child image.
1: Carla herself was honest about her past. In 1998, she wrote a letter to George W. Bush, then governor of Texas, requesting that her death sentence be reduced to life in prison. In the letter, she didn't shy away from the brutal realities of what she had done.
0: She wrote, The fact is, we went into the apartment, we brutally murdered two precious people, and we left out of there and even bragged about what we did for over a month after. In a last-ditch effort to save her own life, Carla recounted her story one last time.
1: She wrote about how, in the early morning hours of July 13, 1983, She chatted with her boyfriend, Daniel Garrett, and their friend, James Leibrandt, while amped up on drugs.
5: I know you hate him.
1: He's
6: no friend of mine, that's for damn sure.
5: So why don't we teach him a lesson?
1: What are you
6: thinking?
5: We go rob the place. I stole his keys, we can slip right in.
6: If we go while he's at work.
5: No, why wait? I say we go now. What if he's home? If he's home, then he better start praying.
0: Around 3 a.m. James Leibrandt drove the group to Jerry's apartment. James waited in the truck while Carla and Daniel went around to the back entrance of the complex. They slipped inside while Jerry and Deborah slept in the bedroom. Daniel was armed with a shotgun, but as he looked around Jerry Dean's place, he noticed several other weapons.
1: The living room was littered with tools Jerry used for his work installing cable and home security systems. Perhaps Daniel realized that a shotgun blast might wake the neighbors, so instead he grabbed a hammer. As the duo rustled around his home, Jerry Dean woke up.
5: What's going on? Shut up.
1: Carla? Carla burst into the bedroom and sat down on Jerry's lap. He squirmed away from her. When he noticed they were armed, he
3: pleaded with her for his life.
5: Move and you're dead.
3: Carla, whatever this is about, we can work it out.
5: It's too late. Don't think I don't know what you've been doing, taking out a hit on me, threatening Sean.
0: You've got it wrong, Carla. Please. Jerry grabbed Carla's arms. They wrestled around on the floor for a few moments before Daniel intervened. He shoved Jerry away from Carla. Then he raised the hammer and struck Jerry in the back of the head.
1: Jerry fell to the floor and went still. Wordlessly, Daniel exited into the living room, perhaps to get the motorcycle they came for. Carla was left alone with Jerry's unconscious body.
0: As Carla waited for Daniel to come back, she heard a noise, a gurgling sound coming from Jerry Dean. It was disgusting and frightening, and it wouldn't stop. She couldn't stand it.
1: Out of the corner of her eye, she noticed a pickaxe leaning against the wall. She grabbed the axe, heaved it up, and brought it down on Jerry's back. She hit him again and again.
0: Unaware of the violence going on inside, Carla's friend, James Leibrandt, got tired of waiting in the truck. He entered the apartment and went into the bedroom to find Carla swinging the pickaxe down onto Jerry. He later said that after she struck the man, she turned... Locked eyes with him and smiled.
1: James ran. He hopped into his truck and left the two murderers behind.
0: Carla didn't seem to notice. She was filled with fury. No matter how many times she hit Jerry, he kept making that sound.
1: Finally, she called Daniel in to finish the job. Daniel rolled Jerry over and hit him in the chest with the pickaxe hard. The gurgling noise finally stopped.
0: Afterwards, Daniel went back into the living room. He grabbed Jerry Dean's motorcycle and loaded it into the dead man's truck. While he was gone and with the bedroom finally quiet, Carla noticed a quivering under the blankets. For the first time since entering the apartment, she realized that Jerry Dean wasn't alone.
1: She peeled back the covers to find Deborah Thornton lying on the mattress, shaking with fear. Surprised, Carla grabbed the pickaxe once more and slammed it into Deborah's shoulder. Deborah fought back fiercely. She attacked Carla with the axe, still lodged in her body.
0: Daniel once more came to Carla's rescue. He returned to the bedroom and separated the women. Carla and Daniel had a quick moment of discussion.
6: What should we do? She hurt too much, babe. We only got one choice.
5: God, it hurts. If you're going to kill me, just please hurry up.
0: In response, Daniel kicked her in the head and knocked her onto the mattress. He wrenched the pickaxe from her shoulder and brought it down again. It was a fatal blow.
1: As soon as she was dead, Carla and Daniel left. It was near dawn as they sped away in Jerry Dean's stolen truck. The long night of violence was over.
0: Nothing Carla did in the aftermath could erase the lives lost. She was convicted in the state of Texas, where more than 60% of residents supported capital punishment. So did their governor, George W. Bush. Carla knew all along that escaping the death penalty would be an uphill battle. Ultimately, it was a battle she lost.
1: In early 1998, Carla ran out of appeals, stays, and clemency requests. On February 3rd, nearly 15 years after the murders, 38-year-old Carla Faye Tucker was executed by lethal injection.
0: She was buried in Forest Park Lawndale Cemetery in southeast Houston. The funeral attendants included Deborah Thornton's brother, Ronald Carlson, and J.C. Mosier, the detective who helped solve the murder investigation and bring the killers to justice.
1: Carla was laid to rest, surrounded by some of the people with the most cause to hate her, Instead, they grieve the loss of another human life.
0: Carla and Daniel paid the ultimate price for their brutal crimes. The deaths of Jerry Dean and Deborah Thornton were tragic and senseless. But if nothing else, the life and death of Carla Faye Tucker served as a reminder of humanity's extraordinary capacity for forgiveness.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. For more information on the case, we found the memoir Crossed Over by Beverly Lowry extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast Originals for free on Spotify.
1: Well, not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify's making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Solved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
0: To stream Solved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: If we live till next time.
1: Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Christina Pamis, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Rebecca Thomas, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.